Hi, I'm Dr. Stan Steindl. Welcome to Compassion in a T-Shirt. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Courtney Walton, who is a psychologist and academic fellow at the University of Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences. His particular area of research interests is with elite athletes and performance artists and the roles of self-criticism and self-compassion in their performance and their health and well-being. Courtney is an accomplished academic and researcher, as well as a clinician. I recently caught up with Courtney at the UQ Compassion Symposium, and so I thought, let's hear more about the work that he's doing. So I bring you Dr. Courtney Walton. What is the the Courtney story in a way? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I, like as, as I kind of mentioned, it has been a bit of a unusual path in some sense. I um I I started my career in neuropsychology, so after my my honours, and I did I did a kind of honours project in in the neurospace, and was confident that was the way I wanted to go. Um, and so I did my PhD in that area, and it was actually during um i i did a phd that was very kind of face to face in that sense um and so i did work with a lot of um patients in parkinson's predominantly um and working with people in, in that uh environment i kind of recognized more and more it's actually the kind of therapeutic side of things i find more interesting than what i was doing which was much more kind of assessment um side of things and and so I kind of made the decision actually I think I want to go more down the kind of clinical therapeutic way um but I've always been so in love with sport so I kind of thought how can I find a way to merge um you know what I love outside of of kind of workspaces with my love of psychology and so after my PhD I actually ended up going and doing a master's in sports psych um up at University of Queensland um and it was there that I was, I guess, introduced to some of these ideas of, of compassion, um, obviously with, with yourself and James up there doing a lot of cool work. Um, but yes, yeah, since then I've um, I moved down to Melbourne in 2020, which was uh, probably the wrong time to move to Melbourne um, and have been based at the University of Melbourne since so uh, three years at Origin and now I'm at the School of Psychology. Um, and my work is, yeah, I guess primarily looking at I I, I would call it clinical performance psychology, um, which may or may not be a term, um, but essentially I guess I, I'm very interested in the in the kind of um, interaction between mental health with these kind of high performance um, settings, pr primarily sport, but also more kind of things like the performing arts and and others. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's kind of where I am at the moment. I do tend to get excited by new things and then chase those, but um, that's kind of the area that I'm, I'm trying to build at the moment. Another thing that might be relevant is I do also work one day a week as a psychologist. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, you you um had if anyone's interested. I mean, yeah, you your some of your earlier papers on I guess 
neuropsychology and, and assessment and, and Parkinson's and some of the findings there. I mean, those are the some of the papers that have been quite widely cited by the, the looks. I had a quick scan on your Google Scholar today. <laughs> and um, so that's, it's, I mean, it sounds like you did a lot of really great stuff there, but made this, this little shift, um, bringing two loves together psychology and sport so am i what's what's your sort of history with sport actually i mean is is that something <laughs> that you you know have done a lot of or at a certain level or anything or what's the story there yeah it's funny because in the field of sports psychology everyone has these really incredible histories and so i was just at a conference a sports psychology conference in um, canada and every speaker that gets introduced, you know, they go through their academic accomplishments and then it's, well, you know, and they had the national record in the long jump and represented Canada at this or, or whatever it might be. And that seems to be a pretty common um, background of sports psychs. I wouldn't say it's mine. I, okay. <laughs> you know, I love sport and, I, and I've always participated. Um, I played basketball. That was my main sport growing up. Um, at a relatively high level, but nowhere near the the level of um, the elites. Um, and then, uh, you know, my body is relatively fragile. I seem to be incredibly injury prone. So um, cycling was kind of my main sport through my PhD um, and a sport that I love, but kind of fell out of love, um, primarily based on traffic. So I'm now trying to get back into it and, and find ways to kind of do that more off-road as a way to get away from traffic, but still be doing the the exercise and everything that I love about it. Um, mm. But otherwise, a massive fan, watch every sport under the sun almost. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a big part of, of my life, I would say. I mean, it makes an interesting point about performance versus or, or performance and participation I guess in a way like there's sort of you know participation in some ways is is really where everyone um, can mm. kind of get involved and then there's just those those few that that get to a, a very high level I was at the golf driving range the other day just imagining what it must take you know for a for someone to get become elite in in golf mm. you know it, it's sort mm. of I reckon I was doing a okay shot every third or fourth hit, <laughs> sort of thing. And I was just thinking they they well they 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 arrive at the club early in the morning and they hit balls all day, mm -hmm. I suppose, in one way, shape, mm -hmm. or form. And and um, but um, participation, but then also I guess yeah, just enjoying it through watching and and so on is is the other bit as as well. Yeah, and and that's kind of I guess where I became interested in in the psychology part was just, you know, yes, through participating, but you know, I I, I, I haven't participated at the kinds of levels that that psychology plays as much of a role, I would say, um, and always and and just kind of watching sport at, at these kind of these um, incredible kind of spectacles and and just being kind of fascinated with how on earth the way as humans um, manage to, to kind of process all of that and manage that uh, without it having kind of a, a detrimental effect on our mental health. So I guess mm. that's kind of where uh, I, I started to um, 
explore some of these ideas in, in moving more towards the research. Actually, could you give us a little primer on sports psychology, I suppose? Is, is there sort of a, a way that you think about this as an area of, of practice or research and so on? What, what would that be? It's a hard one because it's it varies so much um, by region, I would say. So, but all I can, uh, you know, if I speak to Australia, um, hmm. so sports psychs here train um you know, as, as with other types of psychology, you go through the kind of four years of general psych and then you do the masters. Um, and the thing that I, that I like about sports psychology in Australia is that you get the, um, the, you know, half of your training, more of your training is kind of general psychology. And then you kind of have the sports side, um, as, as maybe a quarter or so on. Um, and so sports psych here really, as a strength in kind of the broader skills in psychology and therapy and, and mental health, um, which are the things that I really enjoy. Um, but then I guess traditionally there's also a real focus more on the kind of mental skills type of thing. Um, how can we help people who, who are performing at a high level to manage and excel as much as, as is possible? So um, whether that's through finding ways to focus attention, manage stress and anxiety, set goals, um, get through injury, re rehab and recovery, um, mm. all, all of these sorts of things. And then also often in a more kind of um, zoomed out sense, a lot of sports psychs are really um, focused on working within organizations and teams to foster cohesiveness and, and team connection and um, how can an organization work effectively together in pursuit of, of whatever they might be looking for so it's it's kind of a um it, there's actually quite a lot of overlap i'd say with organizational psychology um i would i would imagine um and then there's also the kind of more you know counseling clinical and then with with injury and pain there's also a lot of kind of health psychology so it's actually mm. uh it's quite a diverse field i think probably more diverse than it's um than you might anticipate generally um, and my my experience is that a lot of people who come through that sports psych program work in very different settings so while a proportion are working at the AIS or with, with professional teams and so on um, I know of a lot that are working in pain clinics or corporate settings or um, general kind of mental health settings so yeah it's it's a nice area yeah, that it, it's it's not just the stereotype of kind of helping elite people even be more elite or something, yeah. or, or just simply. Exactly. I mean, it, it sounds like that's a a bit part of it. Is it it is about really having that performance focus and helping people to continue to perform at that level or, or even improve. But it's much broader than that. It has a mm. it, it has a focus on systems and organizations, but it also your particular interest is it interest is in that focus on kind of where mental health fits in as well, I guess. And and yeah. so 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 just flesh that bit out for us. You know, what what's what's your particular interest there of sports and mental health? Yeah, I I, I guess I think of sport generally as a really positive um, thing in the context of mental health, right? And, and a huge amount of research has 
primarily been focused on that relationship, which is actually participation in sport at various levels tends to have a really positive effect on our mental health um, for, you know, reasons to do with, you know, the fundamental act of exercise, but also connectiveness and um, connective connectedness uh, and, and kind of um, the sense of self-esteem that comes with growth and participation, all, all of these sorts of things. Um, but, but once you start to get to that pointy end, I guess, um, there are more and more, I think, risks or stresses that can perhaps um, have a more detrimental effect on mental health. And so I think that's kind of something that we're only starting to get a better sense of now. Um, and so now we're kind of, I uh, kind of, if I imagine this, it's like we're now getting this really kind of good understanding of, oh, look, there are all these things about sport that we might need, well, elite sport, that we might need to reconsider if we want to be supporting the mental health of, of athletes. Um, but how can we do that without sacrificing the fundamental goals of elite sport, which is performance outcomes, winning? Um, whether we like it or not, that is kind of what elite sport is, is about. Um, and so we still need to, in many ways, account for these for these sorts of things. So whether that's um, the, the amount of time that's invested into being an athlete, kind of as you were talking about, with even just a high level golfer that's that's not professional, um, mm. we see we see elite athletes who invest everything into being an athlete and. Um, I was joking. <laughs> I, I gave a talk yesterday. Uh, uh, no, yesterday, day before. Um, I was saying that my team, uh, St Kilda, in the AFL, I looked up their average age last year was twenty four point one or something years. Uh -huh. um, meanwhile, I'm kind of just starting my career. I think of as a you know ten years older than that. Um, and so we see athletes who are retiring at an early age, and then there's a real sense of what next. Uh, who am I? What do I do? Um, and so that focus on elite sport often comes at the expense of other things. Um, and, th and then there's a whole number of risks that we see in terms of, um, unfortunately, kind of abusive practices um, in, in sport that can be quite common. Um, and the sorts of, I guess, in the context of maybe what we'll talk about today, I guess I'm interested in a lot of the more kind of internal aspects of that. How do, how do you relate to yourself um, when maybe things aren't going so well, when that's everything that matters? Um, and I think that's probably where the, the compassion piece will, will is so nicely suited to sport. Yeah, it's interesting. You, when you say the, uh, the pointy end of sport, you, you're sort of talking at that elite end. Yeah. But I, I, I sort of have a sense that there, there are vast numbers of elite sports people who sort of aren't yet making money out of it, aren't yet kind of at that level where, um, you know, it's it's kind of like a, an actual career or something like that. But, you know, rather they're not quite making the team mm. or not not mm -hmm. quite getting to the the nationals or the, the international events and, and mm -hmm. yet in some ways putting just as much time yeah. and energy and effort and and so one one thing is the the people who 
make it sort of thing and and you know and they face various challenges as well but it's also just a whole large numbers of people who who are are elite but and and facing various you know kind of risks Mm, definitely and the the i think the kind of stereotyped assumption of elite athletes is the um for many people is is kind of the the premier league player on 40 million dollars a year and and <laughs> living yeah. this very extravagant life and that's not really the reality of most elite athletes most elite athletes are struggling on scholarship to scholarship to try and fund their travel to competitions yeah. and um you know most of the kind of olympic sports you know, athletes in this space are often managing different jobs while also trying to train um, yeah. at a level that's competitive and it's incredibly difficult um balancing a lot of the time um an elite sports career or or desire to to have and make an elite sports career with everything else mm. um, so yeah it's there's there's more diversity in the pointy end um yes as well yeah mm. what what are i mean this is a bit of a Perhaps I'm springing this on you a little bit, but but what are some of the stats there in terms of mental health outcomes, maybe, and that sort of thing amongst elite sports people? Yeah, so there, um, the team, uh, the team that I have been part of, um, so that's with Rosie Purcell and Simon Rice um, hmm. at Origin. They have done a lot of work with um, the Australian Institute of Sport uh, and published a number of those findings. Um, and so that's, you know, the uh, elite pointy end of athletes in Australia. Um, so not professional sport, but elite. Um, and so what they found, uh, that was done just before 2020. So before COVID, um, they found that, you know, not through clinical interview, but through, through surveys, um, the estimated rates of mental health disorders were slightly higher than the norms we would see in the, the community. So um, it was around, from memory, around 35% or so of athletes were meeting the threshold for a probable mental health disorder. So mm. pretty high. Um, and, and similarly, we've also done some work looking at coaches and, and um, kind of high support um, staff, high performance support staff even higher um and so yeah the the rates are definitely if not if not slightly higher they're at least the same um as what we might see in the general population which is higher than i think what a lot of people expect i think a lot of people expect they're going to be much lower um Mm. because of maybe um other opportunities that exist um and interestingly you know testing my um, recollection a little bit, but my memory is that there were some interesting um, kind of different different outcomes in terms of things like meaning and and well-being at times was were quite high, but the distress was extremely high. Um, so there's I think there's this often this kind of I'm doing something I'm passionate about and and there are many aspects of my life in which I, I really care about and enjoy, but also incredibly stressed and incredibly anxious. Um, mm. 
and and maybe some other factors as well um mm. so yeah we're we're getting more and more now in terms of understanding of what those rates actually look like um it's incredibly difficult data to get uh, mm -hmm. for many reasons so mm. there's always um caveats with any of that kind of research i tend to find but but the estimate is is similar if not slightly higher than the general mm. population yeah and isn't it interesting that a lot of elite well, not, I suppose a, a section, a subsection of elite athletes, do, athletes do go on to be elite coaches, <laughs> and so the the sort of the stresses, I guess, just continue into those, uh, you know, also high pressure roles. Mm -hmm. I might actually get yeah. those some links of those papers off you, uh, you know, later, sure. and and include them in the the, the notes um, on sure. the YouTube. Um, link or whatever because um, that yeah that does sound like interesting data so where does compassion and self-compassion fit in really in, in or, or what are some of your the questions you're asking or the things you're exploring there yeah so um I, I guess the background for me of where that came in was actually during my master's um James Kirby who I assume a lot of people watching this probably know of. Um, he came and gave a guest lecture basically really early on in my master's about compassion. And I just thought I had no idea about, never even, obviously I'd heard the term compassion, but I'd never heard of compassion-focused therapy. I hadn't really thought of it in a scientific way. Um, it, was, it was more a kind of... Um, idea of being nice was probably my assumption of compassion before before that talk um and it really i really was like oh this is so perfect for athletes um and so from there i i i kind of chased james down he ignored my first few emails but finally managed to track him down to supervise <laughs> my masters um and so he was my he supervised my thesis in my masters where we looked at, at self-compassion in athletes. Um and yeah, so since since then really I've been trying to I guess build up more understanding of how this fits in. Um I, I think in in terms of theoretically, I mean, all of the kind of underlying ideas of CFT um make a lot of sense when you think of it's it's kind of like just turned up to 10 almost in in high performance and sport and so i guess two of the the key things i often think of are um the kind of self-attacking self-critical tendencies um that obviously we all have but are rife <laughs> in elite sport where predominantly you're, you're kind of not doing well enough in many senses you're often finding that you're not kind of meeting what you might hope to um, because those goals are, are so incredibly high um, and so with that comes a lot of a lot of self-criticism um, the other thing that I think is critical is this idea of social rank um, and very few places is that kind of more tangibly and objectively um, put out for everyone to consider than in elite sports so 
you know, even where, you know, when you go to like, um, I've been into sports settings, you know, clubs or whatever, where it'll have like every player's up on the board with their like, whatever the metric is, um, you know, red, green, orange, these are the people that are not doing well. Um, that is going to be raising a lot of where do I stand compared to everyone else? Um, mm. And I think that sport really emphasizes that a lot. Um, and so these are kind of like two critical things, I think, when we think of what we might try and be um, some of that rationale for where compassion can be really helpful. Um, and I, I definitely see sport as somewhere that's accentuating both of those. Yeah, um, we're, we're constantly, the athletes are, are constantly having to sort of self-monitor and self-evaluate and and yeah um, it's you know so much is at stake like you said it's highly meaningful for them but it's so much is at stake that that they can slip into some of the more vicious hostile forms of it i suppose mm. you know the, and and mm. also if there are that there perhaps there are voices from their past or even in their present that are also you know kind of criticizing mm. and then that social rank piece is interesting because it just makes it kind of come alive doesn't it in in a very mm. in your face sort of way a lot of us do have a sensitivity to social rank and where we fit in and where you know that sort of thing but to have it up on the whiteboard in in sort of red you know and then of course other practical things like you get dropped i suppose which yeah. is a fairly you know kind of obvious demotion in in one's social rank so those are yeah, yeah. they're some of the the really tricky is is shame in there then is that part of all of that yeah I, I i definitely see that as a key part of um some of the outcome with the rank-based stuff a lot of the time right so um exactly a good example of what you mentioned with things like um being dropped and and how you can then relate to yourself um after poor performances especially um in team-based sports that can be a really big a big part of it right that kind of like um sense of of shame of letting others down letting yourself down um and so yeah that that's definitely a big part of of where i think kind of targeting with compassion-based intervention is probably going to be really helpful so what are some of the the kind of findings so far i mean what in terms of are there kind of examples there that, that of, of your studies that you you'd talk about yeah, so it's it's really growing rapidly. Um, there is a, a lot of work um, that's starting to develop looking at self-compassion primarily in um, in sport and, and high-performance athletes. Um, a lot of that work's been pushed coming out of Canada. They've, they've really kind of um, been at the forefront of that. Um, Leah Ferguson and which have done some really cool work um and really what what the work so far suggests is everything that we might think in terms of the benefits of compassion um in, in terms of often better mental health outcomes um uh reduced kind of distress among this is among athletes who might be reporting themselves to be more self-compassionate um a lot of qualitative work looking at how um, self-compassion has been really helpful for dealing with specific kind of sports, sports specific um, 
instances of of kind of letdown or or disappointment um how, how can we kind of manage that more effectively through compassion um interestingly though in terms of the intervention that's where we're really behind um there's there's very few kind of compassion-based interventions in in sport and so that's something that i really want to start to do more of um, obviously those studies are hard to do um and similarly nothing in the kind of with through the kind of cft or compassionate mind training lens um so very kind of like brief interventions compassionate letter writing these sorts of things um something that's very interesting is the probably the biggest study looking at a compassion-based intervention that's really recently published um which takes the mindful um sort of compassion program but essentially removes the word compassion throughout um so it tries to kind of get at some of the underlying ingredients um but avoids the term uh and, and kind of relies more on terms like resilience to to try and get buy-in with athletes so I guess that speaks to a, another thing that has come out of the research, which is a lot of athletes will be resistant to this, just just like in the in the broader population, obviously, with um, the fears of compassion that are so kind of prominent. Um, but I think in athletes, this is probably even more so. Um, there There is a lot of reason to think that athletes will be resistant to these ideas. And so, again, just, just like with everyone else, um, I think working on uh, how can we help people to understand more effectively that compassion isn't about reducing standards or, or kind of letting ourselves off the hook um, when we don't perform at the level we want. Um, that's actually not what we're trying to do through compassion-based interventions. But I think that that often is the starting point of what people assume with mm. who are coming from a very kind of performance-oriented lens yeah i did i did have a little thought pop or question pop to mind uh from the more correlational stuff i guess that you were alluding to earlier but you know what is the relationship between some of the more shame-based self-criticism and performance measures versus self-compassion and performance measures i mean has has that been done yeah there's um luckily i just looked at this recently so I can remember but um there have been some measures looking at um there was one study by uh Leah Ferguson who I just mentioned who um essentially looked at like baseline um well pre pre-season measures of self-compassion and self-criticism um and then how does that relate to a, a kind of range of things we might think of as important in sport um, at the end of the season and, and generally finding that that athletes that go into the season scoring more highly on things like self-compassion tended to do better in these kinds of things so things like mastery and um, uh, performance kind of perceived performance and then on the other hand people who um, scored more highly in self-criticism had the opposite effect Mm. Um, and there was a there's another study um, which I can briefly recall, which looked at uh, athletes and mu uh, musicians, I think, um, and showed showed a similar 
thing, not not with compassion, but that uh, those who were scoring kind of as more self-critical tended to make less progress towards their performance-based goals through the, through the season. So this idea of self-criticism being like fundamental and super important um, in sport, I think, uh, is challenged in some sense. And, and mm. I think finding ways to recognize that it doesn't have to be, you know, really kind of hostile, self-attacking stuff to get ahead. And there can actually be these other ways of relating to ourselves that can be motivating to to try and improve and to get better and to to learn mm. and grow and all of these things that we know are important. That mm. doesn't have to come through hostility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a really crazy. <laughs> that, that's yeah, that's an interest. A really good um, uh, sort of methodology is to look at at self criticism versus self compassion at the start. And then sort of see, you know, what happens with the sport and the performance, and 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 also, you know, like how how does one go at dealing with disappointments or setbacks or things that happen across a season, say, you mm. know, depending on where they are at at the start with their self criticism and and self compassion, and and also, I guess it speaks to the, the you know Paul Gilbert's forms and functions of self criticism too, doesn't it? I suppose the idea that. Perhaps there are some forms of self-criticism that are still helpful, the more kind of self-improving versions, but there are some, the more shame-based ones that perhaps have this negative uh, mm. af- effect. And and uh, But I can imagine that a lot of elite athletes and sports people, and I think you mentioned musicians and so on, that you know, mm. they would be quite attached to the notion of self-criticism and, and the different forms get kind of blurred a little bit yeah. and and so the the shame based stuff still sneaks in yeah definitely and there's a quote that i have used a number of times in in talks from or the study of of kind of um college athletes um perceptions of self-compassion and, and one of them said something like uh, people who are like that won't go very far in sport as, as in people who are self-compassionate mm. Um, yeah. In a, you know, this this just isn't the space for those kinds of people because they don't really know how to push themselves and and yes. to, to kind of be tough. Um, yeah. Which yep. which kind of speaks to an understanding of what self compassion or, or compassion is. Yeah, because that that was the other thing that stood out in what you were saying a moment ago was this the the way that that other study just sort of therefore didn't mention the words. You know, like it's sort of like he who must not be named or something that you're not allowed to <laughs> use the word compassion and i always sort of feel sorry to about that you know that is that the only solution i mean what what are your thoughts about the use of the word and is it in fact better with with certain groups to steer away from it or or is it more about you know trying to 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 sort of build an understanding of what we're meaning by the word um, it's, it's such a hard one. I, I lean towards the latter. Um, so my broader perspective is that we should be trying to move to a place where the idea of being compassionate is normalized as a, a good thing in sport and that it can be, um, helpful for people and for performance. Um, I think that's obviously where we want to get to. So I, I think by 
by not using this word or, or not talking about this, then potentially we are slowing down that progress in some sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think about, um, we recently published a paper, a model of, you know, kind of unrelated about psychological safety in elite sport and how, how kind of psychologically safe environments can be supportive to mental health. Are we kind of quite purposefully in the model use the word compassion um, as something that needs to be fostered and nurtured in these spaces? Um, so, yeah, I, I understand the rationale to not use it. I think mm. it's probably uh, easier to get buy-in, easier to get people interested if you're if you're talking about resilience rather than compassion, um, and my understanding is that 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 program is still kind of focused on lots of the same ideas, but just kind of slightly reworded. Um, so I, I understand the the approach, but but my perspective, which may or may not change, is that um, I think let's try and make it. Let's try and make people understand more what compassion is and what it isn't, um, mm. and then and then just talk about that in sport and I, th I think the big part there is to help help athletes and coaches understand that the fundamental part is that this can motivate improvement it's it's mm. not letting it be okay and i think that's the fundamental fear um, mm. in a performance I, context. I, I loved how you said you know sort of helping people and performance you know i i, I mm. guess with this population you know you sort of include you're putting both of those a bit side by side in a way for, yeah. for the for the person hearing about this you know it's about helping people and performance um and and if we don't use the word it kind of just sort of perpetuates the stigmas evolved involved with the word and 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 yet if we can sort of bring understanding to that then you know perhaps it'll even spread and to be honest, I, I have other feelings about the term resilience too. You know, I, I feel as if there was a study, which I'll see if I can find, but it, it was with veterans actually, so not in the sporting world, but but that resilience can often become interpreted as keep going at all costs sort of thing too, you know, so that, that we're, we're sort of being resilient, but to the point whereby actually sometimes it might be better to stop doing that actually mm. for a while and and you know whatever it might be so all of these words are you know kind of i guess it's, tricky in their own ways yeah and i try to always be mindful of the fact that you know because i'm interested in cft um i have developed a more nuanced understanding of compassion uh i don't have that nuanced understanding of other terms and probably have my own um, assumptions and so uh, I think yeah resilience is a big one the other big one in sport is mental toughness mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. a term which I still struggle to really know what it means um, right but, but these are two terms that are like key in sport and, and people always want to talk about resilience and mental toughness um, and there's you get the same thing right you get people saying kind of what you just said in, in terms of um, resilience can kind of be reinforcing harmful or problematic um, environments or, or experiences and, and kind of saying, grit your teeth and get on with it. But my 
um, limited understanding is probably that resilience researchers would say, no, that's not what resilience is. Resilience is, is this. Um, and so I, I, that's always the hard thing with any of these yeah. these types of... I mean, I think that's that's the point though, isn't it? Is that the resilience researchers are defining it in a particular way. The compassion researchers are defining it in a particular way. <laughs> But how these words are received by the people exactly. on the other end is is sort you know that's where it becomes um, you know kind of interesting too and and potentially up for grabs. Yeah. Exactly. So what what's your kind of next big thing? Do you think like do you have anything in you mentioned intervention work, but but do you have anything in the pipeline that you're kind of excited about coming up? Yeah, uh, two things. So one thing that we've just finished. Um, which has been a really difficult project for many reasons, which I won't um, bore the listeners with. But basically, um, we have been trying to develop more understanding of, of compassion, self-compassion in the performing arts. And, oh, yes. and so that was a project I um, did this year with uh, James Furby and Margaret Osborne, who's a um, kind of music anxiety researcher here. Um, and so we've just finished that. I'm about to dig into the qualitative um, outcomes of that study. Um, so there was two parts, but the, the second part, which was the intervention, which was really simple and, and really essentially asked performers to listen to one of three compassion-based meditations, um, try to each day. Uh, we didn't really set any limits on how or, or when um, really just gave them the, you know, we started with a workshop and talk, tried to help them understand what compassion is and isn't, why it's relevant, and then kind of gave them these meditations and said kind of how do you use them how you see fit and and, and tell us about it afterwards um, because we don't really have a good rationale yet to understand what, how can we use these before performance or after performance or training and these sorts of things so we let people use it pretty flexibly um it was a really small sample uh so it's very preliminary early work but the simple pre-post stuff was really positive um mm. so the the pre-post data on on measures of mental health and compassion all kind of go in all the ways we'd like the compassionate motivation action scale um increased a lot we had medium to large effect sizes um and but the sample is so small that um you know we have to be pretty cautious about interpreting that so it's it's really the idea with this project is to get a sense of if this is something we can pursue further mm. um and so that's definitely something i'm hoping to do because there is nothing in the performing arts it's like sport is really growing but in the performing arts there's really very little um and the qualitative data was really promising like i i haven't got into analyzing it uh in a in a formal sense yet but just by doing those interviews the feedback we got from performers was really um positive about the type of role it plays for mm. them um and, and i think something that's interesting about that population is maybe you know broad strokes generalizations but something that the performer, a number of the performances in that sample set is, oh, you know, like I'm a, I'm an actor. Uh, so of course I'm familiar with meditation and, and mindfulness and, and kind of uh, yoga and these sorts of things. So I think um, 
whatever you want to call this kind of bucket of, of approaches, I think performers do tend to be a little bit more familiar. Um, right. And so the idea of doing like a compassion-based meditation for the average football player um, might be received slightly differently to the average um, actor or, actor. or dancer mm. or whatever it might be. They, they seem to be pretty like, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with these ideas and I think they're really relevant to me. Mm. I, I actually was wondering about sort of actors versus dancers in my mind because dancers are some, t really, they're more like the elite sports person in a way, mm. you know, just given the physical component. But um, yeah, well, this is this is the never ending um, cycle of categorization. Yes, <laughs> we no, have this that's... problem even just among athletes. You can you can cut, mm, cut that up into many different. Um, and it, the other thing that's um, excited about, which I hope to start in the new year, is um, I got a little bit of funding from the the school here to develop a um, sport specific or performer specific um, measure of of compassion. Um, because I think that's something that could be incredibly helpful for the field, which is primarily relied on the self-compassion scale. Um, mm. I'm starting to bring the CMAS in um, mm -hmm. to some of the, the sport work and the performing arts work, but people's perspectives on, on compassion may vary a lot in dependent on context. And so I think if we can get a measure that's more specific to performance spaces and, and understandings of compassion, self-compassion there, I think that'll be really helpful tool to have. So I'm planning to um, dip my toes into the scale development space next year <laughs> <laughs> with, with some help of some better statisticians than myself. No, that does sound actually really useful. I mean, the, the self-compassion in the sports area does sound like it's on a bit of an exponential curve. So something, a measure like that might be really sort of quickly adopted and and, yeah. and so on. Um, and the performing arts, yeah, that's very interesting. It's, it's, still, it's still exploring kind of the experience of those who are kind of elite and, and you know, how that how these different constructs, self-criticism and status mm -hmm. and shame and, and self-compassion all kind of work. There's a lot what? of, um, a lot of overlap, like all of the things that they were taught, you know, some of my early questions were, you know, do you think self-compassion has a role in, in the performing arts? Why? And everything they said, you could have just swapped out with an athlete and it would be, you know, very similar. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to zoom out a little bit more and more in the sense of like performers generally, including athletes, uh, because mm. I think a lot of the kind of underlying factors are pretty, pretty similar. So at this stage of the game for you and so on, I mean, and, and sort of thinking about performers, elite people, you know, those sorts of things, what would be sort of three tips if you like, you know, what, what would you say uh, are some, some kind of takeaways there that, that, you know, you'd offer the average or not the average, but the, the average elite, <laughs> I suppose, person <laughs> in terms of bringing self-compassion in. I think, um, I don't know if I have three specific tips, but I, I think a really important part of any of this type of work is the, is the kind of underlying understanding. So, um, 
I actually think learning and reading about this space is so helpful um, to, to start. Um, obviously, you saw I flagged some books on the back there, but um, I, I do think that that's where a huge amount of the work can happen is, is getting more understanding of what actually is compassion and what, what does that look like? Um, how can I get a better understanding of how I can start to integrate that? Because I think if you jump into um, using like uh, some of the interventions or meditations practices that you might find, I think it can be hard to engage with unless you have that kind of underlying um, understanding. And so obviously, like if you're doing CFT or, or, or CMT or anything like that, obviously a big part of the start is the getting on the same page and yeah, yeah the psychoed. And so I think um, that's kind of a nice place to start. And then from there, you can start to integrate um, some of the practices that, that um, you'd be able to find and that I'm sure you've talked about on here um, yeah. many times. Mm. No, I, I think that's really an important point you know with people who are elite they're doing whatever they can to succeed and and so often they will start to sort of you know become very um particular and and about their own their, their own selves and their own um motivations and and skills and efforts and abilities and and, and self-criticism just rolls out of that and they become very scared of compassion mm. you know want to <laughs> let themselves up the hook they feel like it is you know dog eat dog and you know all those mm. sort of things and so really it's about how might we create a kind of a a sense of what compassion even is and that it's actually mm. quite different to letting off letting oneself off the hook and much more about doing what is in the benefit of of you know health and well-being uh, but people and performance you know that seems like a a key piece of it as well well Courtney thank you so much for spending a bit of time and and giving us a a, a rundown if people were wanting to to find your stuff and I might actually ask you to send me a few links of some of your papers too because it, sure. people would be interested to to dive into that but yeah where can people be in touch um I guess the obvious place is Twitter um, or right. X as it apparently goes by. Um, what is my, <laughs> I think it's CC underscore Walton. Um, okay. I'll send that to you to double check. Um, but yeah, I, I do tend to use that for sharing research um, that I'm mm. doing. Um, so that, and otherwise, please do get in contact by email. I have a Unimail email address, which I use mostly. So Courtney.Walton at unimail.edu.au. Um, and yeah, always keen to hear to hear from people who might be interested in doing more in this space. Um, right. But yeah. Thank you very much for the chat and um, and thank you for your work. And we will talk again soon. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's been good fun. <laughs>